Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins, episode 38. I am Scott Gardner and joining me is my new co-host, Michael Bailey. How's it going, Michael? It is going fantastic. I've got a dog in my lap. I've got coffee in my hands. It's time to do some podcasting. Well, it's better than a dog in your cup and coffee in your lap, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I hope everyone's rested after last week's episode. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, it was it was a monster. I we got we got at least one commentary going. Wow, that was a really long show. But I hope that didn't translate as wow, that was a really long and like boring show or something like that. Everybody seems to like it pretty much. Yeah, it was a big um, book. I mean, you got a you know something like that. That's an event. That's not just yeah you know issue five of Trash Man. Right. You know, so to use your analogy that you usually do. <laughs> well, I love making up funny names like that, like Dirt Man or Trash Man or <laughs> Shit Man or whatever. You know? <laughs> well, you know, because you throw out a real name and then you always run the risk of, ins- you know, there's always going to be somebody that's going, hey, I liked that book. You know, no matter what utter crap that you could think of to, to mention as an analogy for, like, a, a completely shitty comic, there's always going to be somebody who, like, that was their favorite thing. So I try except to refrain from, from really dogging something out that, you know. Except for DC's The Butcher. I, I liked I, The Butcher. <laughs> oh, God. I'm sorry. See what I mean? <laughs> Damn it. I now just, you just pissed. Just... That's it. This is the first and last episode with with, with Michael Bitt. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> No, I did. I like the butcher. I, I wish they'd. Uh, that's that's one of those characters I'd like to see them dust off and bring back. I think he had I a lot of potential. I didn't. I, I remember not liking it when I bought it. At the time, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, real quick before we get going, I just want to throw out a uh, a, a bit of uh, what do you want to call this? This is uh, an update. There you go, an update. Um, two episodes ago, back on episode thirty-six, um, we had uh, Mike Poteet was on the show. And he reviewed a comic called Superman War of the Worlds. And true to my word, as soon as that show is over, I went on eBay. I scored this baby for a buck. And uh, got it and read it, and I freaking loved it. It is really, really good. I highly recommend it. Um, if you're about period pieces, if you're about, you know, especially like the Golden Age Superman, um, if you like the War of the Worlds, if you just like. 1930s, 1940s science fiction, you'll get a real kick out of this. I thought it was a damn good book. If you like the Fleischer Superman cartoons. Yeah. yeah, Because it had that feel to it, too. Roy Thomas wrote that. Michael Lark, who went on to uh, great acclaim on Daredevil and Gotham Central, Mm -hmm. uh, did the art for that. And I just, I love that book. Yeah. I absolutely love it. It was really good. There are so many great homages to both Superman lore and to uh, War of the Worlds lore, and it was just a great mashup. I, I really did get a kick out of it. The only uh, the only thing was that the book had been spoiled, and Mike Petit did not spoil the book in his review, but somewhere along the line it had been spoiled to me. I, I knew how it was going to end, and that that kind of took it down a notch only because I, I, I was waiting for it to happen through the entire book. But it's still, you know, don't let that deter you. It's still a great book, a great read. It was a hell of a lot of fun, and I highly recommend it if you can uh, if you can score it on the cheap. So uh, Superman War of the Worlds, check it out. It was a really keen book. And uh, let's see, uh, what did we have before we get into the show proper here? Did we want to go over anything? Um, no, I haven't had any really good back issue buys lately, so I'm uh, I'm kind of light on that. 
Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get out and hit the fifty cent box pretty heavy because now that now that we're doing this, I want to I want to make a concerted effort to at least try to do that mm-hmm. when I get an extra ten bucks or so, and then just talk about some of the weird or sometimes you know the, the great thing about a fifty cent bin is most of the time you're you're going to be picking up stuff that's pretty common or that just had a large print run, but or you know, that everyone has, but every once in a while you'll find that book that's worth a good bit of money that's just stuck in there. Oh, yeah. You get it for 50 cents, so uh, I don't really have anything on that front, Cool. Well, unfortunately. I, I know that we wanted to talk about um, show format a little bit and maybe oh, yeah. maybe alleviate, you know, some some trepidation that, you know, long-time listeners might have and all that, but I think we can save that for the end of the show because we have a new sure. feature that we're going to introduce, yes. and at the end of the show, after we do our new feature, we're going to kind of throw it out there to uh, to the listeners on where they want us to go with that feature. So, anyway, let's go ahead and uh, and get cranking. Well, I I have the first book this week. I true to my word of just picking out random books to read instead of just really trying to think about what I was going to pull ahead of time. I went through my back issue bins and pulled out the Defenders number one twenty four from October nineteen eighty three. This was the last issue of the Defenders before it became the new Defenders, with issue 125. And it was written by J.M. DeMatteis. i got to remember that that's how it's pronounced, DeMatteis. Uh, the artists were Don Perlin and Kim DeMolder. And the title of the book is Darkness on the Edge of Time. So an enigmatic time-traveling elf shows the Hulk... Doctor Strange, the Silver Surfer, and Namor, basically the founding members of the Defenders, a decimated Earth in the 24th century, and accuses the four of causing it. Now, this was at a time where the Hulk was intelligent. He had the brain of Bruce Banner. It was a really awesome run of the Hulk uh, that eventually kind of devolved and fell. And you know, of course, the Hulk's life fell apart. But it, uh, when I when I picked this out, he was talking intelligently, and they kept calling him Bruce. I was confused for a second until I remembered that. So Namor goes all avenging son on the elf, but the guy stands his ground and figures there in the year 2387, and follows that by saying that as bad as the Earth looks soon, it will break up into so much cosmic rubble. Silver Surfer whines because... Let's face it, that's what the Silver Surfer does. A bit as Namor asks about the oceans, and the elf transports them to another desolate area and says there are no oceans left. Strange uses his mojo to figure out what is going on, and suddenly the four heroes find themselves before the Tribunal, who make it pretty clear, pretty quick, that they are to be treated with respect. After causing the four to wink out of existence for a moment, the surfer suggests that they should be tread lightly with the beings before them. And uh, it's a J.M. DeMatteis script, so it's very verbose. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I love his writing because of that, because it takes a while to get through, but when he gets into the cosmic stuff, it gets really, really flowery. <laughs> Meanwhile, Beast, Iceman, and the Gargoyle watch as the Secret Empire's attempt on the Scarlet Witch, and Vision's life is cleaned up. The Beast tells the Vision he should throw in with the Defenders, but the Vision declines, which depresses the big blue fuzzball, because as Iceman points out, the Beast had his heart set on building the Defenders into a real team. Back at the Tribunal, that group explains after some typical, you don't know me, and I hate that. 
I've really come to hate that when you're like uh, when when they're dealing with cosmic characters, and all the cosmic characters can say, "Well, we are in forms that your feeble minds can grasp," because if we showed you our true selves, you would like wig out and be all brain dead and stuff. I don't know about you. That bothers me now. I would like (laughs) to do an entire episode one day on comic book cliches and see (laughs) how many of them that we could come up with because, yeah, I'm totally with you, brother. That's something I'm so sick of hearing. You know, your feeble human mind could not grasp the magnitude of blah, blah, blah. Fuck you. And they and they tell the group that they came to the solar system in a future time and sought to discover the cause of the Earth's destruction. They bred a race of elves to do so, thinking that for some reason elves were this key symbol for humanity. But that turned out to be a mistake. But they still used these elves to eliminate key individuals that might cause the Earth's destruction. So it's a bit of Terminator type thing where you know you're going back in time to kill the person that's going to be the mom of the guy that leads the revolution and this even kind of ties into early issues of the defenders because apparently in 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 the in the 20s of this book uh these elves were running around killing people which i thought was kind of cool so the tribunal finally figures out the defenders were the cause and even posed as a clandestine government agency to probe the minds of former enemies of the Defenders, which happened a couple issues before. They also reveal that Luann Bloom, a ally of the Defenders, was actually a mechanism designed to infiltrate the group, and she kind of wigged out when she fell in love with Nighthawk, who is dead at this point. Strange demands proof, and soon they show him another home movie of Doctor Strange finding a strange alien fortress. Strange finds that the aliens are trying to save their prince with three humans known to the Defenders. Realizing that the aliens are far from evil and confronts them, he is knocked out by a laser cannon. So they hook Strange into the machine because his mojo is better for healing their prince, but he escapes via his astral form and summons the surfer Namor and Doctor Banner. The aliens attempt to escape, but are faced with the might of the three heroes. They dive into the ocean to evade their attackers and generally freak out until Namor and the rest bust in. And at this point, they probably regret their vow against violence because the defenders pretty much clean their clocks. They free Strange and the others with a minimum of fuss, only to find that all of the aliens have killed themselves. And the, the Hulk asks why... And this is where we get the elf pointing at us, the reader, which I always kind of like. Uh, and, the, and the elf says, and if you're looking for a good answer, you'll be back next issue for a special 38-page extravaganza featuring the wedding of the year, the return of the mutant force, the end of all life on Earth, the demise of the old defenders, the birth of the new defenders, and look, you just be here, okay, if you know what's good for you. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I kind of liked I, I liked the writing, at least. The art is very haphazard through this entire issue. <laughs> the Hulk looks different pretty much on every page. Yeah, Don yeah. Perlin was, was real hit and miss. He, he could do some stuff that was really great, and then other times he just seemed to kind of phone it in. So, But uh, it has a really nice cover. 
I really can't see what this... It looks like Plunkett and Weiss. Uh, it's got Valkyrie, the angel, and my favorite angel outfit. It's the red and white one. Yeah. With the halo on the on the, on the on the chest. That is my absolute favorite costume of his. Yeah, I have the uh, Marvel Legends figure of that and just love it. <laughs> it's cool. And the gargoyles there, uh, who I've never really cared much about. And the beast looking very skinny. But uh, it's a dynamic cover. But you know what? <laughs> Uh, dropping into the middle of this, I still really liked it because through the exposition, they brought me up to speed on what was going on. So I at least had an idea mm-hmm. and it did what I want every comic to do. It made me want to read the back issues, right? Like to go through my run proper to figure out, to see all of these things kind of fall into place. And I love the concept that these aliens who humans can't understand and are so intelligent chose elves as their means, because apparently elves are like Christ or or Buddha or something like that. You know, people are going to listen to the elves, and they have this page of people running away from them. So. Now, this Weiss that worked on the cover, I'll bet you that's Alan Weiss. That, Probably that guy I was talking about some in some podcast or other about how I really liked him, but he he just seemed to kind of fall off the face of comics one day. Uh, I also like the fact that this has a uh, ad for the the Kool Aid Man uh, uh, in television game. Oh yeah, I used to have that it's, game. <laughs> it's got a Burger Time ad, but my favorite because I saw this ad a thousand times in the comics I was reading in the early '80s. The Star Frontiers ad from TSR. Oh yeah, it was a uh, it was a uh, role uh, a spacefaring role playing game, and it was these aliens coming in to buy it. And I remember because. I bought a lot of comics around this time. I never collected anything on a regular basis, but that was like the one thing that they all had in common. Oh, yeah. That freaking story. They had that one, and they had the one with the zombies coming after the guy. He had like the little R2-D2-looking blaster robot thing, and it's, it's like in a school or something, and these zombies are coming after them. There was another one of those. I think it was a TSR game. I forget, but it was one of those role-playing games. That ad seemed to be in all of the comics of this era, too. And in the bullpen bulletins, uh, after going through all of the staff shakeups that have been going on at Marvel at the time, with editors stepping down to be freelance writers, uh, Jim Shooter signs off the bullpen, bullpen bulletins with, I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> so I figured you'd get a kick out of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially. <laughs> no, it, it was, I loved reading it. I, you know, it, like, like I've said a couple of times already, you know, one of the one of the reasons why I'm so excited about doing the show is that I get to kind of go back to that old school feeling of just grabbing a comic and reading it, mm-hmm. not worrying about getting the entire run, not worrying about knowing everything about it so they don't feel lost. Just getting back to that time when I was like eight, nine years old and everything was new and everything was cool. So, uh, so on that end, I I, I consider it a, a grand success, even though it was overwritten. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's that's what this show is all about is is you know giving the love to this old stuff and and just finding the appreciation of comics again because you and I both agree that that comics these days the the kids you know the comics these young kids are reading these days just sound like an old fart just <laughs> they just aren't doing it for us and uh, you know one of the things you know you you had mentioned how this comic throws you into the middle of the story. 
yet it succeeds in the fact that it makes you want to go back and, and find out what is the story and read the back issues leading up to this and, and maybe even go forward from this. That, to me, is the sign of a, of a good comic, but also, to me, it, it puts the nail in the coffin of that argument of you got to reboot this stuff every few years. You know, the, the kids today, they're too stupid to pick up a comic and, and, you know, that has 20, 30, 40, 50 years of history and figure out what's going on because there's such this, you know, huge back. I call bullshit on all of that. I mean, when I was coming up, you know, Superman was, you know, 40, 50 years old and there's all this backstory and all this continuity and everything. And it just made me want to delve in more and learn all that stuff and discover mm-hmm. all that rich history and all. I didn't feel intimidated. I didn't feel like, oh shit, you know, you know, there's there's more than three issues of this. I can't get into it, you know. <laughs> that's that's stupid thinking, and I, I I call bullshit on that entire argument. I I love delving in, and I see my kids are the same way. They love getting into something. Like Spider-Man, they both discovered Spider-Man and they both like it for the same reason is that, you know, when they start reading the books and then they start reading like those, um, oh, what do you call it? Those essential guides Mm -hmm. and finding out about, you know, obscure storylines from 20, 30 years ago and obscure villains that we haven't seen in a long time. They're loving that shit. It's a whole rich new world that opens up to them. So, yeah, piss on the rebooting shit every couple of years to, and, and, to keep the fresh readership or whatever. I, I think it's ridiculous. And not only that, we're in an era where, I mean, outside of Wikipedia, just about every major comic book character has a website devoted to it. Right. Where some very enthralled fan, you know, or, or some idiot stupid enough to do a podcast about, you know, like the <laughs> Justice Society, for example. Yep, there you go. You know, <laughs> uh, there's the plug. Um, but, you know, you can find out anything, pretty much. You mm. really can. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the information is wrong, but on the whole, you can find a synopsis, or you can find somebody online that has read those books that you can talk to. Right. And it's it's not you know it's the exact opposite of when we were coming up that if you didn't have Defenders number one twenty three if you didn't find it it was pretty much non existent right because, you know, comic shop I I didn't go to a comic shop till I was twelve years old so and and even then back issues were still kind of this new and bright thing shiny on the floor that had me all distracted so I think people have it better, and you're in a better position Oh hell to, yeah! to learn about old comics these days, whereas before you just didn't have that option. Right. There was a Defender story from when I was a kid. It was one, it was written by Roger Stern, and I'm trying to remember who the artist was, because the art was phenomenal in it. And it ended where somebody had been trying to do something to the Hulk, And it ended up where he was now going to be stuck as the Hulk for like the next 24 hours or something. And just the way it ended, ended on a great cliffhanger. It was 20 years before I found out how that story (laughs) ended because I couldn't track down the issue. And, you know, so that's, I I totally agree with you. Kids today have it so easy because, you know, five minutes on on Google and, oh, okay, well, that's how this story resolved itself, you know. And they're reprinting everything. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, uh, you, you mentioned the essentials. The essentials are great. There's nine volumes of the essentials. That's essentially 20 years almost of Spider-Man comics. Mm-hmm. Just right there for 170 bucks total. Mm-hmm. Cheaper if you buy it online. But <laughs> Well, before I do mine, I want to remind people that um, we are not making this shit up. We really do completely randomly select our books. Um, we probably have differing systems on how we select those books. But I did not know what Michael was bringing today, and Michael did not know what I was bringing today. So, the one that I'm uh, I'm about to review, by just incredible coincidence, is written by the same exact <laughs> writer. So, you know, what you going to do? But, uh, okay, on this one here, we're going back to March 1981 for a book that doesn't get much farther out of my personal wheelhouse than this. This is House of Mystery, number 290. Um cover is by Joe Kubert, and I gotta be honest, it's okay at best. I'm not the biggest Joe Kubert fan. I respect the guy. I like his layout style, but I think he's a great layout artist. I don't think he's especially a great standalone artist, and feel free to send your hate mail to Scott at whatever. <laughs> but, you know, I just, yeah, it's okay. Scott um, at your opinion doesn't matter to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Scott at ghostforyourself.com. Uh, uh, no, I'm kidding. This is written by the same writer as your Defenders issue, J.M. DeMatteis. Art by Tom Sutton, who, again, is very hit and miss to me. He's uh, the artist on a lot of the issues of Star DC Star Trek that Chris and I are reviewing over on uh, Two True Freaks on our Star Trek Monthly Mondays. But I actually like the art in this one. It lends very well to what the story is. Uh, original cover price is $0.50, cents, and I know you're asking yourself, why in the hell are you reviewing this issue? Here's why. Years and years ago, I can't tell you the exact circumstances or what I paid for it or what else might have been in the collection, but I bought this massive collection, and part of what was in there was nearly a complete run of the all just about the entire storyline of something I've always wanted to read called I, Vampire. Um, I remember reading this guy's entry in Who's Who, and he just sounded like a really cool character. And I have an issue of... Brave and the Bold, where it was Batman and I, Vampire, teamed up. And he just seemed like a cool character. I've always had a soft spot for the cooler comic book vampires. Because there's a lot of comic book vampires, but only a couple of them are really all that cool. There was like, you know, Dracula over in Tuma Dracula, this guy, and then I can't remember what the hell his name was, Night Flyer or Night Rider or whatever over in uh, Team Titans. I thought that guy was really cool too, and unfortunately they just kind of brushed him away in, uh, in Zero Hour. So, yes, they did. Yeah, he just kind of disappeared into limbo. But if there was one character I wish that they would have saved from Team Titans, I wish it was that guy because he had a lot of potential. I thought he was really cool. So anyway, there are two other stories in this book, which I kind of gave a, a passing glance to. Neither one of them are all that great. As a matter of fact, one of them completely rips off uh, an old Twilight Zone episode and should be ashamed of itself. So <laughs> after the opening splash page that has Cain and Abel introducing the issue, I don't know who the artist is on this, but it's really, really nice. Really nice art. Um, but it, there's no credits on it. If I had to venture a guess, I'd say it could possibly be Mike Kaluta, but I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, 
Getting into the Eye Vampire story, this is the first Eye Vampire story. I'm assuming it's the first appearance of the character, but I could be wrong on that. But this is the first chapter of Eye Vampire within House of Mystery. And we get our beautiful splash page that gives you um, just a brief introduction to who, who all the players are and sets up their basic, you know, what their deal is. There's uh, there's a girl character, there's this old guy, and then there's the vampire that we're going to follow in the story whose name is um, Andrew Bennett. And we start the story where this girl and the old man, they're on a rooftop and they're um, observing something or other, they're watching for something, and this wolf comes up on them and starts growling and everything, and they get all nervous and freaked out. And the old man is, you know, telling the girl, you know, get behind me and I'll try to defend you and all this. And suddenly the the wolf changes into Andrew Bennett. And the woman's like, oh, Andrew, it's you. You know, I thought it was one of them. And, you know, he, he tells them that, you know, he didn't mean to startle them and all that. But his wolf form was perfect for rooftop travel. And we get the idea that he was just kind of playing with them, you know, just, you know, getting their hearts racing a little bit. Just kind of kidding around with them. And That's we, a good friend. Yeah. Well, we, from there, though, we get a really cool origin flashback for this guy. He um, he has actually been a vampire for hundreds of years, um, going all the way back to the court of uh, Queen Elizabeth, where he was uh, a lord, and he was uh, you know a man of legend. He uh, fought during the war with Spain and all this and, you know, built himself quite the reputation, but he was never, he never saw any glory in war. It says, you know, he did his duty and all that, but you know, it it really made him sick to his stomach. He was more of a, of a lover than a fighter. And then it goes into the story of his love for this woman, this really pretty redhead named Mary and how they were deeply in love with each other. And, you know, they wanted to be together always and all this sort of thing. And one night, He's headed off somewhere, and she begs him not to go. You know, please don't go riding tonight. Something feels wrong, and he kids her about you know the fact that she seems to have these these you know a touch of the psychic about her. You know, she has these psychic visions and stuff, and he tells her that you know she needs to keep these things to herself, or that the queen might have her burned as a witch. And it's kind of a joke the way they play it off, but <laughs> he's probably not far off. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> so he's out riding one night and comes across this really creepy old man who you know stops him and and they get into a conversation and and Andrew's like you know do I know you you know I I can't pierce the gloom very well you know reveal yourself to me kind of thing and he gets off his horse and it turns out that this guy is using his vampiric powers to put Andrew under his thrall and he bites him and turns him into a vampire and Andrew is, you know, able to fight the guy off and he stakes him and kills him, but the damage has been done and he dies. And this was in the year 1591. Three days and three nights later, he resurrects and he comes home to Mary. And he locks himself into, into a room of his, whatever this, a castle or manor or whatever, and she finally forces her way into this chamber where he's been hiding out, and she finds him drinking a chalice full of blood. And she's really freaked out about the whole thing, and she realizes that the dreams that she'd been having about the old man with Satan's eyes, she says, were, were actually true. 
and she tells him that you know despite everything she still loves him and that she wants to be at his side for all eternity and everything and so she begs him to make her a vampire like himself and he's horrified by this idea and doesn't want to do it but eventually he relents and he does do it and it turns out to be a horrible mistake because as soon as she resurrects she's no longer the sweet nice Mary that, that he loved you know the, 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 the beautiful girl that he was in love with she fully embraces the whole you know I'm now a superior creature of Satan and all this sort of, she becomes very much the, the, the typical demonic style vampire who's now going to be perfectly content to go out and you know feed upon men and all this sort of thing and he realizes that not only has he lost his love and not only did he kill her but he's created a monster. And then we come back to the present, and it turns out that the story with him and the girl and the old man are that for hundreds of years, basically ever since he made Mary a monster, he has been tracking her through time as she has amassed this empire, and there's some sinister scheme that they're working on, and as they're talking about this and trying to figure out what their next move is going to be now that they believe they've actually managed to track her down and they know where she is, suddenly they're attacked by a legion of... I don't know what these are supposed to be. They're, they're like a legion of undead, but I don't know if they're supposed to be zombies or or half-vampires or what. They, they don't ever turn vampiric or try to bite anybody, so I guess they're supposed to be like, like zombie-type characters. And they manage to fight you know fight all of them off and everything and it turns out that it was a diversionary tactic and Bennett looks down off of the building that they're up on top of and he sees Mary getting away in her car so he turns into a giant bat and he flies down and Superman style he rips the doors off her limo and everything and pulls her out and you know at long last he's finally tracked her down and he's finally got her and it turns out that it's actually one of her minions disguised as her and the real Mary got away and you know this this person turns into a bat and flies off taunting him that you know you'll you'll never be able to stop Mary and you know what she's doing in this blood red moon society and all this and we're left at the end of the story with a you know to be continued and Andrew's thinking to himself that there must be an end to this madness Mary there must be an end and it was a little corny. It was a little cliche, but man, I dug it. I thought it was really good. Yeah. I like the premise. I like the whole setup. And I, what this really felt a lot to me like was one of the old Tomb of Draculas, but it, but with a different spin. Where you know, what if Dracula had been trying to make right, basically, you know, trying trying to be a good guy and and get over his vampiric affliction, basically. And that was my original, whatever the first story I read with Bennett was, and I'm pretty sure it was that issue of Brave and the Bold, that's how he came across to me, is, is he was a vampire that was trying not to give in to you know, the, the, the beast within, within him, basically. And he was trying to be, silly as it sounds, he was trying to be a good vampire. And I, I dig that. I, I think that's an interesting take on it. I, I don't know that it necessarily mashes up with vampire lore i was always under the impression that you know once somebody became a vampire the the person they really were dies or or 
goes to heaven or hell or whatever and that it's really like more of a they become more of like a, a demon or something inside of them but oh you you could always play with the fact of, of what were they when they became the vampire right you know mary wanted to be a vampire so you know that is why she kind of went all evil right on it because she was totally embracing it whereas he was it was forced upon him he was a good person to begin with so He's just trying to survive and now make good on the the evil he has unleashed on the world. It, it it's almost kind of like the TV series Forever Night. Yeah, I've never seen that. I've I've heard good things about that, but no, I, I haven't ever seen it, that. It was very much the Highlander series, but with a vampire instead of immortals. So okay, uh, and I was a big fan of the Highlander series and everything you described to me. I was actually seeing cinematically. And if DC was on the ball, if Warner Brothers was on the ball, they'd get an iVampire movie oh, hell yeah. into production and release it at Halloween. Because if you make this, because hearing this whole you know thing about a society and it's you know like a, a vampire and his team of humans tracking down this bad vampire, I mean, that's, that's an action horror movie right there. And just him jumping off of a building, I, I don't think they'd have him turn into a bat in a film. Because that would look... I think that looks silly, but I just I just saw this guy jumping off a roof, you know, and plumbing into a car and ripping the hood off. I'm like, why aren't they? Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I'll just awesome. agree with you about the changing into a bat thing, though, because that's the one thing that bugs me about modern day vampire stuff is that they they seem to me like they want to half-ass it because one okay. of probably my favorite <laughs> vampire film of all time is Fright Night okay. because that film. While it did play a little fast and loose with some elements of, of vampires, ultimately it did embrace all of the the major trappings that we've come to, to think of with vampires, you know, with people turning into bats and wolves and clouds of mist and stuff like that, having hypnotic powers and all, every, all of those elements were in Fright Night, yet for its time in the 80s when it came out, it was a very hip and cool film. And I think that that totally could work in in 2010. I think that you could make a hip and cool modern vampire film that still played with, you know, crosses and holy wafers and holy water and people turning into bats and wolves and and stuff. I think it could totally work. I don't think there's any reason. The CGI would have to be dead on perfect, though. I think they could do it, though. I really do. I mean, you know, they they did it back in the '80s with this film, and I, I think it holds. I don't think it looks dated at all. I think it looks, you know, I mean, it's dated in the clothing styles and the music styles and stuff like that. But I'm talking like effects wise, I think it looks damn good. And so, the, and the fact that they tried to make Marcy from Married with Children kind of the the, the sexy young lead, which <laughs> I just don't think ever worked. But that's just me. yeah. I wondered if you were familiar with that film. The sequel's really no, good, too, and I, I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with the sequel. No, um, That's a great it's film. got Roddy McDowell and uh, Chris Sarandon, mm-hmm. who was Prince Humperdinck and Princess Bride, and was the uh, the speaking voice of Jack Skellington in Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, I did not the know vampire. that. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, I like the sequel, too, because it's got uh, Kirk's son in it. What's his name? Buttrick? Uh, Merrick, Merrick Buttrick? Something like that. Yeah, something like that. One of his last roles before he died, I believe. No, I, I like that film. It's it's not my favorite horror film, but uh, I when I watched it, sat down and watched it, I'm like, you know what? This is this is a really good '80s horror film. Yes, it is. 
Yes. Which you can't say very often. No, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a phrase you can use very often, right there. But, uh, yeah, I I completely agree with you. I think that, uh, you know, with with vampires being back and, you know, we've got things like Twilight and stuff like that coming out, uh, yeah, I I could very easily see DC uh, dusting this off and, you know, either making a movie or or at least bringing him back in the comics and trying trying to do something with him. I was intrigued enough that I'd like to follow the story, but my one beef with it was that I'd rather see a little more angst from Bennett in the fact of not so much that he feels responsible for having created a monster, but that he feels bad that he killed the woman he loved. And now look what she is. And I never really got much of, there is a a, a twinge of that in the story, but he seems more agonized by the fact that, you know, I've got to stop her from going out there and killing people kind of thing. You know, I really wanted to see more of a, Oh Mary, what have I done to you? You know how yeah. you know I'm, you were my love, and I killed you, and now look at what you've become, kind of thing. And not getting much of that, at least so far. And I, I would hope that more of that would come down the line, because how what an awful way to spend the next you know 400 years. You know you, this was your one true love, and you know you did this to them at their insistence because you thought that this was going to be your way to cheat death and to be for together forever. And now look what they are, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that would be the better way to, the better angle to, to play this story, you know, where, because for one thing, what happens if he catches her? What, what happens when he truly does track her down and everything? Will his revulsion for what she has become outweigh his love for her will he actually be able to to put her down for real you know to to bring an end to her entire existence by staking her or, or whatever and that would be very interesting to find out you know that he actually tracks her down and and, and can put an end to her will he do it kind of thing. i think that would be a hell of a story so I, as I can make it to it, I'm gonna you know check in periodically with more chapters of this story, and uh, and I'll report back and and let you know how it goes. But yeah, I, I thought it was pretty cool. That was very awesome. Uh, you, you got me interested at least, <laughs> which is cool. And now it's time for the big reveal of our new uh, special feature on the show. Uh, do you do you want to do the honors on this one, sir? Well. Uh... <laughs> The origin of this comes from the Cracker Barrel. Uh, when Scott and I were sitting there eating dinner together one night, and he he asked me if I had ever read, or somehow the subject of Burns' run on The Incredible Hulk came up, and that you had it out, mm-hmm. uh, as in not filed, and that you were like, man, that would make a good podcast. I'm like, you're, right. I was like, you're absolutely right. And from that, when we kicked around... Uh, you know, me coming on back to the bins, we decided that would be a really good addition to the series, or at least a good idea at first, of us doing the two random books, but then picking out a series, a you know, a run in a book or a mini series or an event or something like that, right? Where we would just sit down and take a look at it. So the first one that we decided upon was. John Burns' run on the Hulk, and we're, we're not quite sure where we're going to end with the Hulk on that, because the story does go on beyond his run on it, mm-hmm. and leads to, at least in, in the short term, it leads to the big, you know, Hulk 
324, which has that awesome uh, recreation of the number one yes. cover when uh, was the return of a certain incarnation of the Hulk. So, with that, we are starting that off with uh, Incredible Hulk number 314. Was there anything you needed to add? No, no, I, th- I think you, I think you nailed it perfectly. Okay, so we're going to start that with the Incredible Hulk number three fourteen. Now, a little setup with this is, as I mentioned during my Defenders book, there was a time period in the early '80s where Bruce Banner had gotten control of the Hulk's body. He could change at will, and when he was the Hulk, he was intelligent. And over a period of time his savage nature started coming back and it really kicked in right after secret wars where he came back from that he had a cast on his leg because his leg had been broken and he was just getting more and more irritable and you find out that the marvel character nightmare had been chipping away at bruce banner's psyche and and the savage nature was coming out more and more to the point where through the 290s leading up to the very epic and awesome 300 uh, Bruce Banner eventually disappeared completely and all you had was this mindless rampaging Hulk and in 300 was where he basically trashes New York City and all these heroes guest star to try to take him down it's got some beautiful Sal Buscema artwork and finally Doctor Strange sent him into the netherworld, uh, what they called the crossroads, where basically right. he could find a reality that he could call home. And for the next, like, 13 issues, it was really trippy. Because he had these three companions that turned out not to be companions, but basically figments of his imagination and different aspects of his personality. And eventually, through Secret Wars 2... <laughs> God, that sucked. Um... The Hulk found his way home, and it, it was it was interesting. I keep saying that, but uh, at the time, John Byrne was writing and drawing Alpha Flight, and Bill Mantlo was writing the Hulk with Mike Mignola doing the art, and they basically just swapped books. So through an issue of Alpha Flight, the Hulk comes out of the Crossroads reality, trashes a city in Canada, and basically rampages south to the United States. And that's where we pick up in Hulk 314. Cover date December 1985. It had a 65 cent price tag. And uh, there are several chapters to this, so I'll name them as I go. But the credits are it was written and penciled by John Byrne with inks by Bob Wyacek. And this was the first uh, issue that Denny O'Neill edited. He was on this book very, very short, uh, very briefly, like Byrne was. Before, uh, before oddly enough, both headed off to DC Comics. <laughs> so, chapter one is Call of the Desert, where we see the Incredible Hulk leaping in the Rocky, Colorado Rockies. His long exile unexpectedly ended. The Emerald Giant is back on Earth, but he is not happy. He almost never is. So he lands, and this uh, deer kind of takes him for a threat and charges, and the Hulk punches the deer and snaps its neck. I mean, it's just, it, it kind of, later on, this would be recreated with Doomsday uh, when he was coming out in the Superman books. Right. 
And the Hulk just kind of looks at the dead deer, confused, not knowing what's going on. He's had many battles, but none have ended so quickly and decidedly. And then he just loses interest and runs off. And this little kid sees him. And is like, man, I gotta go tell my dad. And the kid then sees this alien spacecraft whizzing overhead. And apparently this story is told in the Hulk annual of that year. Which kind of annoyed me when I read it. It's like, why are you... Why are you interrupting the story for that when it really has nothing to do with what's going on? Because they want you to go check out the Hulk annual. And I know I've read it, and I can't remember. I, I can't, can't remember, remember it either. I've read it, too. It. But the, then we... It's not the, the one... Oh, no. I, I was thinking it might be the one where he fought Sasquatch, but no, it's not. I, I no, that's that's much earlier, but I love that annual. I'll put that down as a, as a possible issue later. Is it number four? It doesn't say what number it is. It just says this year, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It may be number 14, because that one has a, a, a burn cover on it, but I, I literally can't remember a damn thing about it. So then we cut to Chicago at one of the uh, universities. Uh, Northwestern University, that's what it is. I thought they didn't name it at first. And we cut into a, a guy coming into Dr. Leonard Sampson's office to tell him that the Hulk is back and has been sighted in Colorado. He rushes to the faculty room where everyone's listening to the expositional news network on on the radio and quickly checks a map decides hey i can catch the hulk tells a woman that you know he's going to have to you know cancel their date for the evening <laughs> and he's kind of a jerk about it too and he thinks as he's uh, leaping off that he really hated to uh, cut out on polly like that especially after having to win her over uh, that he is not just a muscle-bound fool, but it's time for Dr. Leonard Sampson to take the back seat to the hero known as Doc Sampson. Uh, and then we have the interlude among the fallen where this, I am assuming Hispanic gentleman is talking to this pretty woman with short brown hair, asking her what's wrong, you know, hey baby, what's going on? You mean and Lois she just Lane? Completely yeah, well, Doc Samson looked like Superman, but I was going to get into this. <laughs> he looked like Superman with long green hair. I'm sorry. Byrne has like five or six stock figures that he brings out again and again and again. It's yeah. not a bad thing. But she like completely wigs out on Ramon, you know, saying, you know, I have a name. I'm not baby. I'm not your woman. And he's just like, you know, you weren't like this at the party last night. And then she hears a report of the Hulk returning, and she's like, that's why I'm upset. I must have sensed it. Now I know what I must do. So we go into Chapter 2, which is titled Yesterday's Sorrow. Doc Sampson is now in full costume, which would change uh, subtly over the next couple of issues. Yeah, I like this original one, though. I always uh, thought me that too. was really cool. Uh, and I feel like a jerk that uh, a couple of years ago, um, there was a line of uh, Hulk figures that came out, and one of them was this Doc Samson. Yeah, and I didn't buy it. I don't know why I it didn't. It was buy hard it. to find, in, in at least where I was. I had the and opportunity. You could buy the whole set. It. I didn't. I really wish I had, because I've always had a soft spot for Doc Samson. I, I can't tell you why. I just think he's cool. But he's sitting there uh, dictating to himself uh, notes on the Hulk, which I thought was a really good way to get the exposition out of the way because he is a psychiatrist and psychiatrists will record their thoughts. So it felt very organic as he's recounting Bruce Banner's origin of becoming the Hulk. You know, Rick Jones drove on a jalopy, you know, because the kids dared him that he couldn't. He goes out there to save the kid, but is caught in the blast. 
and he, you know, screaming. Five hours later, he's still screaming. He wakes up in the infirmary. You know, the Geiger counter starts going crazy. He turns into the Hulk for the first time. And then suddenly, the we cut back to the present where the Hulk shows up, and they start laying into each other in proper John Byrne fight scene style. You know, they are just wailing on the Hulk's punching him, he's punching the Hulk. You know, and the Hulk definitely has the upper hand because he's so much stronger. But then we cut to chapter three, where the Juggernaut apparently shows up, and he and the Hulk start fighting, but... He seems to disappear. Suddenly, Modok rises from the ground and attacks. But he's a phantom as well. And the rhino shows up. And Doc Samson is, you know, very beaten and bruised. He's got a black eye. And he looks, you know, like a couple hundred miles of a bad road. And the Hulk, to him, is not fighting anybody. And But to the Hulk, the Abomination shows up and attacks. The leader shows up and by this point the Hulk has it figured out these these people aren't real so when Leonard Sampson comes up to him again the Hulk's like I don't have time for you you're just a phantom I'm not going to fight you and Sampson uses this as a chance to sucker punch the Hulk and actually knock him out and he feels that because the Hulk was fighting what appeared to be enemies from his past that Bruce Banner was still in there and that Bruce ha- was trying to assert dominance again. And because of this, Doc Samson feels that he has a chance to save him. And that's where this really awesome introductory issue ends. Yep. God, I love this book. I do too. Um, first and foremost, the art is absolutely freaking phenomenal in this. I mean, Burns Hulk is just awesome. He, this This is the quintessential Hulk. He's mega huge he's mega powerful he owes back to the best incarnations of the hulk that have existed before this point you know most notably the kirby hulk and the and the busema hulk and uh, i just think it's fantastic I, I really like where the story was going i don't normally like origin recap issues but i, I you know because it's burn and he does it in such a, a brilliant way you know the art's fantastic i even like the the origin recap and I well, would know, just like... Ab- oh, I'm sorry? About that origin recap, what I liked about it was, yeah, he was retelling it, but he also added in the fact that he believes that the reason why Bruce ran out onto the test range to save Rick was that it finally dawned on him that this was a weapon that could kill people. Right. You know, to him, it was a scientific exercise. And then when somebody was actually put in danger, it kind of was like, holy crap, I just built something that's going to kill people, so I need to go save this kid because, you know, that is my way of kind of making up for it. And it's something that Peter David would run with, too, in his run. He would do it in a different way. Mm -hmm. But I really liked this. I really wish we would have gotten more of this as a direction. Uh, and as a, an emotional underpinning to uh, to Dr. Banner's character through Burns' run. But it was very short, so who knows? He may have come back to it right. at some point. Well, I would just like to point out that, that this issue, along with... Uh, there's an issue of Iron Man. Let me see if I can... F- it is... I believe it's at the very end of issue 132 of Iron Man. 
they have something in common, which is in this issue, Doc Samson knocks out the Hulk. And yeah. Iron Man 132, which I'm not sure exactly what year that came out, but it was right around this same general time. Iron Man channels all of his power into one mega punch and knocks the Hulk out. So I just want to say that, to my mind, this puts to rest the ridiculous argument of whether Superman could beat the Hulk. Superman could knock the living shit out of the Hulk, and I don't want to hear any more about it. So shut up. I'm I'm sorry, you know, the Hulk's powerful and he's hard to, he's hard to beat, but you know, you, when you have that and heat vision, yeah, you know, it's just... and you could hit and... him forty thousand times in an eye blink, yeah, yeah, it's just like I mean, because Doc Samson, honestly, what power level is Doc Samson? Because I'm thinking Doc Samson is like Golden Age Superman power level. Yeah, I, I would assume that. I mean, he breaks his hand, right, yeah. knocking him out, but. Yeah. You know, Doc Sampson's a heavy hitter. I would put him on par probably with She-Hulk. Oh, okay. Because uh, She-Hulk's not quite as powerful as as Bruce is when he's all roided up. Mm-hmm. So, but he's he's up there, and and then that would that would play out over the next god twelve years again and again and again. How how powerful though he does eventually get messed up pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, long story short, I absolutely love, love, love this issue. It's uh, it's always been one of my favorites. And if I'm not mistaken, um, one of the Hulk figures that came out, now I think it was a Marvel Legends figure, this was the issue that was reprinted along with that figure. I'm, I'm almost positive. So, I think it was. Yeah, so that's... No, I, I, in fact, uh, no doubt, I, I can say for sure it was. Because I remember reading it uh, when I got that figure, opening up the page and that beautiful splash page of the Hulk leaping through the air, and it's just like, wow, that's just so awesome. <laughs> but, yeah, Doc Samson looks like Superman. Oh, yeah, um, most definitely. Well, I mean, most most burn heroic guys that are of the same general stature as Superman look like Superman, you know, because even his Reed Richards look like Superman, so, Yeah. <laughs> But I, you know, I, I I love the guy, so I, I no 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 that that is not meant to be an insult. It's just his style, you know. It's just, you know, it, he he's got a lot of he's he's got a massive amount of storytelling ability, and the man will pack detail in the back of his panels like you wouldn't believe. I mean that it, it sounds weird, but the 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 like uh, faculty room that he runs into. There's stuff all over the place. There's a bulletin board, you know the you know the chairs and the tables all look like something you would find in that. I mean, it's just that's the kind of thing I like about Burns artwork. Oh yeah, most definitely, most definitely. And I wouldn't normally think that he and uh, Wyacek would be that great of a of an art team, but man, it works in this one. Bob Wright, Bob Wyacek really uh, reined himself in well for this one because he he can have a very uh, a very thick style sometimes that can be a little bit overpowering, but he uh, he he didn't bring it to this one. Well, that's about all I've got on this. Um, I just want to throw out something to the listeners, a, a couple of things to the listeners. For one, I apologize that we are running a little bit long in this episode, but this is something of a dry run. You know, this is the this is the first episode of of the quote unquote new back to the bins, which, as you can hear, it's not going to be that different. So, I, you know, no. people that got all all worked up about oh they're going to change the show, and, and it's not going to be that different, really. We're, we're going to stick more to the true premise of you know, my true idea of what, what I think the show should be. We're adding this one special feature. 
And uh, so I just want to put it to the listeners. Uh, please send some feedback. We get very, very, very little feedback to this show. I know you guys like it because the numbers are fantastic, but I don't hear much from people. So I'd really like to get some more feedback. Please let us know what you think. What do you think of the running time? We are going to try to rein it in. Um, I really want to keep the shows under an hour. 40 to 45 minutes would be ideal. But, you know, Michael and I are both very verbose and we both really get into the material that we talk about. So that's going to be a little hard. But I'm shooting for under an hour at this point. Um, What do you think of the new feature and where do you want us to go from there? Because I've. You know, I, I go a couple of different ways. I could go with at the end of the the burn thing with the Hulk that we could go and we could tackle something else. And I've got a couple of really cool ideas of things I'd like to do. Or the other half of me says, "Man, I'd love to keep going with the Hulk stuff and at least go through, say, like uh, you know, something like Hulk three forty five, which you know, that's that's just one of my personal milestone issues. So, I mean, I could go either way. I, I want to leave it up to the listeners, though. I want you guys to tell us, where do you want us to go with this? What what classic stories or storylines or one-shots or event books or anything like that do you want us to cover? But just remember, it's got to be older stuff because we're – what did we agree on? Like 95, 96? Around 95 is the cutoff, 95, yeah. 96. Yeah, so older older than you know 95 and, and before – that's really the era that, that we want to concentrate on this. We, we consider that to be our personal golden age is things older than that. So, you know, don't ask for us, you know, to review, you know, Infinite Crisis or something, you know, because that's just not in the wheelhouse of this show. But, you know, if you want us to go back and, and tackle some, you know, classic, something that you may have heard of but you've never had a chance to read or you just want to get our take on it, please let us know. We'd be more than interested in that stuff. So... Give us some feedback. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the 2 True Freak section of the comicforums.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demonzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.